welcome to episode 80 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And this episode, we are just lawyers talking about uh, technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, uh, as I reflected on the hiatus and what we had to leave out of the last uh, uh, episode, I thought we probably should just dig into some a few stories a little deeper um, a, instead of uh, asking a guest to do a short interview. So, uh, plus, um, to be honest, uh, uh, we had a you know, last-minute uh, inability to find a guest. So, uh, we'll be back uh, with a guest next week. Uh, and uh, this week we'll just have several of our regulars, plus Doug Cantor um, from our government affairs office. It'll be Mike Vadis, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime uh, prosecutions, among other things, now doing criminal and civil and Bitcoin uh, uh, work at Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, Doug Cantor, whom I introduced earlier, uh, is part of our Government Affairs and Public Policy Group, who focuses on uh, congressional issues involving technology in particular. Uh, uh, welcome, Doug. Thank you. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. And if you're more interested in my uh, uh, adventures in Iceland, I finally posted them on the Volek conspiracy, uh, um, and uh, maybe Steptoe will po- uh, publish them. I'm not sure. We'll see. Uh, there's no law in it uh, to speak of, uh, uh, but uh, plenty of hypothermia. Well, why don't we get started? Uh, uh, the most interesting issue of the week probably was the Microsoft uh, uh, oral argument before the Second Circuit in their long-running effort to persuade uh, some judge somewhere that uh, there's a problem with serving a warrant that requires them to pull data out of their Irish data center uh, at the instance of U.S. law enforcement. Uh, and Michael, you've been involved in that case for a while, filing amicus briefs and the like. You went to the oral argument. I read it. It was... Uh, Well, it was the Judge Lynch show, among other things, but uh, he was definitely not on Microsoft's side. I thought that was pretty clear within 30 seconds of the opening argument. Yeah, not even. Well, you know, on the the positive front, the the case sure captured the attention of the judges and the the public and the media. Uh, It was scheduled to last 24 minutes. It went a full hour and a half um, with lots and lots of questioning, mainly from uh, the presiding judge, uh, Lynch, as you mentioned, um, packed courtroom, three overflow rooms were also packed. You had to get there probably two hours early just to get into the courtroom unless you found a way to sneak in, uh, which some of us did, fortunately. Um, uh, but, you know, I think the general tenor of the argument was pretty rough for Microsoft, uh, but it could also be misleading because at least 95% of the questions were from Judge Lynch, who was clearly on the government side. Uh, interesting note that he was the, the government lawyer in what's known as the Mark Rich case, which is the Second Circuit's version of the Bank of Nova Scotia line of cases, which basically hold that the, the government can use a subpoena to force a U.S. company to uh, get its records from abroad and bring them back to, to turn over to the government. So, so he and, would be a total true believer on this, because that was a very hard-fought case with all the money in the world on the other side. Uh, uh, and so uh, uh, it's not surprising that uh, he still remembers that position uh, uh, from muscle memory, if nothing else. Well, he even alluded to the fact that he stood in the well where Microsoft's counsel was standing before him and made some of the same arguments about disrupting international comedy and things like that. He said all those same arguments were made by the other side in the in the in the Mark Rich case, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, but I say it might be misleading because the other two judges were relatively uh, quiet, and when they did ask questions, they were uh, neutral to possibly leaning towards Microsoft's way. So the way you know the way I see it is how much energy are they going to devote to uh, uh, to withstanding what I what I would expect was an onslaught of argumentation in, in uh, chambers, you know, when they were deciding how the vote was going to come out oh, uh, yeah. from, you know, from Lynch's side. Uh, you know, personal dynamics matter in those things. And he clearly, as you said, was a true believer. 
Um, he was, you know, he was firmly in the government's camp on the question of whether, uh, you know, the only relevant thing was where the disclosure happened. And it, in his mind, it seemed because the disclosure of the emails would happen here in the U.S., there was nothing extraterritorial about the, the use of the uh, Stored Communications Act here. Whereas Microsoft's argument is, well, you know, clearly something important is happen, happening extraterritorially because the government is effectively reaching into a server in Ireland and grabbing information out of it. The fact that Microsoft is being used as the government's agent pursuant to a warrant doesn't change that calculus at all. So, Jason, I, it, it seems to me that I've been in meetings with CSIPs in the last 15 years where CSIPs has, has more or less said what matters is where the server is, where the data is. If you help a foreign government uh, get that data out of a server in the United States, uh, we could indict you as an aider and a better to uh, espionage. Uh, uh, very tough talk, which the current position seems to be inconsistent with. And I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether this has been fully reconciled with all that history or whether this is just a matter of uh, uh, the government wants the data and they also want to be able to prosecute people for espionage. Well, I've never been privy to a conversation where anything like what you described has been said. It's been consistently the position as long as I've been at DOJ that what matters is uh, two things. First, that, that a U.S. company be within – or the company from which the, the data is sought be within the jurisdiction of the U.S. Uh, court system. And second, that that company have custody or control over the data wherever it happens to be stored so that they've got the ability to make the disclosure in the United States. I think, though, uh, one of the things that your question sort of alludes to is – uh, the likelihood that if the government prevails, there will be more aggressive efforts by other companies, by other countries, to put pressure on the the local offices of the of the U.S. providers in their countries to provide data that's in the United States, as and to bypass the mutual legal assistance treaty process to do that. I think the U.S.'s position would be, I think, in those cases, that the local outpost of Google in Brazil doesn't have custody or control over the data that Google has in the United States, but but the parent does. I think I think they could be given it, right? If they could go in and look at it, they have control over it. Uh, they, they don't uh, they don't have exclusive control, but they can certainly get it. They can print it out. They can pull it down, and there you go. I mean, this might create pressure for companies to to sort of address issues of corporate structure, so that they can withstand those arguments from foreign governments. Yeah, I, and I, I actually get a sense that um, that's been going on quite a while. Uh, I, if if the government is relatively allied and absolutely determined to get the information, uh, people find ways to deliver it outside the MLAT uh, process, and the government of the U.S. has backed way off of the positions it was taking in the 90s when it was making those those uh, espionage threats. Um, uh, but um, I, I continue to wonder how the government is going to react to this. And, and Microsoft said that multiple times. You know, if, if, we, uh, if we do this, other governments are going to uh, be making the same argument. And uh, I think Judge Lynch said something like, uh, well, we don't do foreign affairs here. This is, a third, this is the judicial branch. You know, th- that's right. I, I think one of the things that's often overlooked about the statute, since we're talking about non-content information here, or we're talk- well, in this case, we're talking about stored emails, but, but when you're talking about non-content metadata, um, the statute actually allows the U.S. provider to, to give that data voluntarily to anyone other than a government entity, and that's defined uh, to be U.S. government entity so uh, or a government entity right. in the United States. So a provider actually could voluntarily provide at least non-content to a foreign government without having to go through the MLAT process if they chose to do so. It's that they, depending on what country it is, they often choose not to do so. Yeah. I, well, I, it is. It, what I find interesting is that uh, you can be – completely, because I have such completely different views about whether this is extraterritorial uh, or not, depending on whether you focus on the production or, or the actual extraction of the data. It's really interesting. Yeah, and see, it seems to me like a, an artificial uh, dividing up of the baby. I mean, the whole thing is, is part and parcel of what the government is asking for. You can't disclose the data unless you first extract it from the foreign Country, So to focus, as the government does, just on the final act of turning over the emails to the government and saying that that's legally the only relevant action, 
just seems like a, a, a legal fiction created out of out of pure convenience to me. So, Michael, if um, if Microsoft loses at the Second Circuit, I mean, I don't think this is going to the Supreme Court. Uh, it, uh, it, there's no conflict uh, at this stage. Um, what does this actually mean for practice uh, uh, and and maybe for the industry? Do you have a sense? Uh, um, it, obviously, all U.S. headquartered companies, no matter where they store the, store the data, are going to be subject to additional suspicion because uh, agencies will say, well, according to this Second Circuit decision, you can be forced to pull our data out of the data center, even if you put it here in Germany, you can be forced to pull it back to the U.S. and produce it. Uh, um, but it seems to me that if it's a German company and it opens a subsidiary in the U.S. and it has data in Germany, um, in many cases, they're also going to be required to produce the data because uh, as long as there is some access, then you've got a, a, an argument that they have control. Yeah, usually, I mean, usually it it's the parent that, that is deemed to have possession, custody, or control. Um, I haven't seen a lot of cases where a subsidiary is deemed to have possession, custody, or control of, of data held by the parent overseas. Uh, and so that might be something that foreign subsidiaries in the U.S. might be able to successfully uh, hold up to withstand demands from the government here. Um, you know, that doesn't mean China or Russia is going to respect that sort of difference. That, that's our doctrine. They They may say, we don't care about Possession, custody, control. Yeah, we, we, have, we, we, got, we got possession, custody, and control of you and your kids too. <laughs> exactly. So get yourself possession, custody, and control of the documents. Yeah, uh, I, uh, but I, I, I do think this, this really, there have been a lot of bogus arguments made by foreign competitors of U.S. tech companies about how, you know, uh, the Patriot Act is uh, good for them and bad for U.S. companies. But now I think this decision really is good for foreign providers of storage vis-a-vis uh, -vis U.S. providers. Yeah, if, if, the, if the government wins this case, um, you will see you'll see ad campaigns from European uh, email providers, cloud storage providers, um, explicitly referencing this and saying, you know, don't store your data with a, a U.S. company because you're just giving your data to the FBI and the NSA if you do. Store it with us, a good German company that, you know, abides by EU data protection rules and, and German privacy rules. And your your data will be safe with us. And with the, we, we've already seen that in the in the past. We'll see it much more once the decision comes down, if it goes the government's way. And what you won't see in the fine print there is, first of all, that that if the government wins here, this has been the practice for years and years and years. So this isn't would be a change in the law. And the, those same German privacy rules would allow a German prosecutor or law enforcement agency to get the data. Oh, just by walking uh, just in by and walking saying, in don't you want to share that with us? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. But it hasn't. It has. It has not been the practice. The, the, the government has not has not ever claimed in this case that it's ever done this before. It's gotten non-content data. It's gotten companies' own business records. It's never uh, it's never gotten data that's held by a company as a custodian for someone else. So it's never got emails or other private information that are that are held by a company on behalf of someone else. If, if it has, then the, the prosecutors in this case uh, weren't able to ever cite anything. So I, 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 you know, ten, twelve years ago, when this stuff started becoming an issue abroad, uh, I had a small practice helping people trying to design articles of incorporation, boards of directors with independent directors, limitations that were built into the uh, 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 the articles on disclosure of information, in the in an effort to persuade foreign governments that. Uh, the foreign subsidiary that was holding their data uh, was independent of the possession uh, and control of uh, the U.S. parent. Uh, it sounds like we have to dust off all those memos. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the government at oral argument actually invited that and, and essentially said something to the effect that Microsoft could have uh, arranged its affairs with its Irish subsidiary in, the, in that manner. The problem is, though, that if you're running a global uh cloud company, whether it's you're an email provider or a storage company or something else, you've got to have centralized uh, control of the data around the world to, to move it around, to access it for your own business purposes. So to to it's one thing to, to have 
corporate papers that say you're in, you know, these foreign subsidiaries independent, but it's another thing to actually wall off your engineers in the U.S. from servers around the world, which you'd probably need to do to really be able to say you don't have possession, custody, or control of the foreign data. Well, okay. Uh, so uh, that puts into sharp focus the relationship between the U.S. and the EU over data protection. And uh, the second development ties into that. It was the announcement uh, by the Justice Department and the European Union uh, that an umbrella deal had been reached on uh, protection of law enforcement data. Uh, and the umbrella deal essentially says that when law enforcement data is uh, traded, it will be protected, it will be kept only for as long as is relevant, uh, um, and a variety of fairly standard protections uh, uh, drawn from either the Privacy Act or the EU Data Protection uh, Directive. The interesting part of it is that uh, the Europeans' uh, bottom line demand was they felt discriminated against because Europeans couldn't bring lawsuits under the U.S. Privacy Act. Only uh, lawful permanent residents and uh, citizens could, could bring those actions. Uh, um, and so in an effort to... Uh, uh, address that concern. The EU uh, insisted that this umbrella agreement include a provision saying the U.S. would amend the uh, act, uh, uh, which is now what they're planning to do. There's a Judicial Redress Act that uh, allows European Union uh, citizens, and interestingly only EU citizens, to bring these actions under certain limited circumstances. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I don't know, Jason, whether you had a chance to look at, at any of that. Uh, I have firm and negative views about this, uh, even though it sounds at first blush like a, like a good thing. You know, I, I looked briefly at it. I, I, my thought was that it was kind of something the U.S. had no choice but to do politically. And, and you know, if nothing else, to kind of dial down the degree of rhetoric about the safe harbor uh, even though the safe harbor I don't think is addressed and, and right. I, I wouldn't have expected it to be addressed in this agreement, but I think in order to, uh, uh, I'm confident that the safe, the future of the safe harbor was sort of the, the subtext of these, these negotiations and that, that they had to get this agreement done in order to, to, uh, to get the safe harbor out of, uh, out of harm's way. So here's my my theory. I agree with you. The safe harbor was the subtext, and the safe harbor was what the U.S. government cared about. So Europe got what it cared about, and the U.S. did not get what it cared about. Uh, And uh, maybe I'm uh, biased, Uh, although there's a claim that these umbrella negotiations began in 2009. They really began under me when I was at DHS, uh, and DHS was running the negotiations, and we we went so far with them and couldn't reach agreement. what seems to have happened is at that point they were much broader. It was a much broader agreement and it said, look, you're going to stop holding our companies hostage if you don't like what we do. And it would have covered the safe harbor and allowed us to uh, uh, be more comfortable that it would be maintained. Uh, uh, and it held the Europeans to the same standard that uh, they were holding us to in terms of what they were going to require of their uh, law enforcement agencies. But this is a deal that I think was improvidently uh, handled, uh, handed over to the Justice Department. And what the Justice Department did was it made sure it was protected. Law enforcement data is now immune from this second guessing and nothing else really, uh, uh, that, or very little that Treasury or DHS does, the safe harbor that commerce runs, all of those things got shunted aside. Um, and the result is we took our best leverage, which is this Privacy Act thing, and we devoted it to protecting Justice Department equities that weren't really at risk. Um, and I predict that, uh, notwithstanding this agreement, the first thing the Europeans will do is to go back and say, well, we didn't promise not to uh, cut off the safe harbor, so now we're going to do it, uh, unless you give us more, because that's always been the, the European approach here. So I, I, I think the Judicial Redress Act is uh, I don't know if um, if you followed this, Doug, but it's supposed to, there's there's talk about hotlining it and putting it on CISA, um, a, and uh, 
that's remarkable in this uh, uh, Congress with this administration, uh, probably because Industry Cares thinks, uh, as Jason does, this is good for uh, uh, the relationship. Uh, and they haven't focused on the fact that they aren't actually getting any protection. Yeah, I think in the current uh, Congress, with the difficult issues that they face, they've got Iran, they've got a possible government shutdown, they've got a whole list of things that everybody seems to think will keep them busy and in town right through the holidays, which they hate doing. Right. Uh, it, it will be very hard to get something like this through on a hotline-type basis. It'll be hard to get anything through on a hotline-type basis. There's not going to be the collegiality and cooperation that you would need, and somebody is going to stick their hand up and say, hold on a minute. Hopefully somebody who so. listens to this podcast, that's what I want. <laughs> hey, let's let's make sure that uh, the podcast concerns have been addressed right. before we hotline this. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, well, that'll be a test uh, whether anybody cites the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast because it's the only dissent so far from this uh, this love fest. Uh, um, uh, well, uh, the Justice Department is making lots of cyber law uh, uh, these days. Uh, it turns out we think they actually served a text intercept order on Apple probably knowing that Apple had encrypted the uh, uh, communications end-to-end and couldn't provide the texts, uh, um, and then didn't ask the judge for sanctions against Apple, which would have been a reach, but but not impossible to pursue. Um, uh, uh, Jason, Michael, uh, what kind of thinking went into this? Was this somebody saying, well, we can't bring a case against Apple unless we try, uh, or were they just uh, sort of highlighting for Apple just how many bad things happen when you encrypt things end-to-end and can't get inside them? Well, this, this to me is uh, sort of a, the newest variation on an older problem. This is going dark, the iPhone edition. Right. You know, from since since before Snowden, since, be, you know, um, at least since 2008, 2009, it's been as we've talked about on this show, uh, the FBI's highest legislative priority to try to address the going dark problem. And the problem usually manifests itself with wiretap orders being executed on uh, Internet communications providers who are not covered by CALEA and so are not required to have an intercept solution, only to be told by those providers that they, because of encryption or because of other technological obstacles, cannot implement the order. Right. And it creates sort of a, a choice among bad options for the government. Uh, you know, one option would be to pursue a sanctions order for failing to comply with the Wiretap Act, which requires you to execute a lawful wiretap. Uh, one but, but surely impossibility is a defense, so sure. that's not, that doesn't, doesn't sound like an appetizing approach. I mean, I, you know, when I, I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for today's show, that back when push-to-talk phones became popular and Sprint was the first company to, to, to really uh, make, uh, make it into the market for those, I remember having a, a knockdown drag out with the FBI general counsel's office when I was in AUSA in Maryland because they wanted us to bring a sanctions order against Sprint for Sprint's failure to, to, uh, to have an intercept solution before they went to market with this. The, there are a lot of reasons why you don't pursue that. Impossibility is, 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 if not technically a defense, is certainly going to interfere with the judge's willingness to impose a sanction. But it's more, pro- on a more practical level, not legal, but practical. You need to have a cooperative relationship with those providers because right. whether it's a wiretap order or t- telephone toll records or other internet records, you need to have a good relationship with the provider and taking them to court is declaring war and, and you need that relationship as the bread and butter, your investigations every other day. So, so that o- option is often not pursued. And what, what ultimately ends up happening in most cases is either you walk away from the ability to get that evidence or the law enforcement agency's engineers sit down with the company's engineers and they try to work out some solution at the, on the government's dime. Uh, now, it, it often doesn't help with that particular case because by the time you get the solution in place, the person stopped using whatever the communications device is. But it's this is just a new variation on that problem now because the political climate is different post-Snowden. Um, Apple ha- has this commitment to end-to-end encryption, um, and so there are some technological obstacles that are very real. And I think that the government was laying down a marker here that th- that this actually has an impact on real cases. Now, w- the FBI actually came up with a legislative solution, and it wasn't to expand CLIA to include the Apples and Googles of the world, but it was to dramatically beef up the penalties for failing to comply with the wiretap order under Title 18. And their proposal called for an escalating series of penalties after failing to comply uh, that, that would double daily to the point that by day 90, I think it was the gross domestic product of most countries on Earth, 
Um, but the idea was to create a significant economic incentive for the company to figure out its own solution. And, and the, the, the FBI is terrific at leverage it doesn't actually use. So the, the theory, I assume, would be they walk in and say, you know, in 90 days we'll own your company if we bring this lawsuit. We don't want to do that. Well, and, and the way they – in fact, they're not worried that they're not willing to do it. They're worried that people like I used to be yeah. were unwilling to do it. And so they, they wrote the proposal in such a way that it would essentially require – the, the prosecutor to bring it in front of the court so that the court could decide whether to impose the penalties. And, and there were certain penalties that were mandatory. For a, a lot of reasons, that proposal did not make it to the finish line. And it seems unlikely in this political climate that it'll get anywhere near the finish line. But uh, but this problem is going to, to persist. And one of the ironies of it is that it is heavily influenced by Snowden, but has nothing to do with Snowden-related concerns. Because this is a situation in which the government got a warrant based on probable cause, individualized suspicion, got authorization from a federal judge in advance, all the, the, the taking advantage or, or, or following all the privacy protections the Constitution and U.S. laws uh, provide for, but still couldn't execute the order. Well, and the, the premise of this whole approach is that impossibility is not a defense. Um, you know, I, I think we've all assumed that, that it is, and it, it certainly has some appeal, but I think there are those in the Justice Department and at the FBI who say, look, the statute says you've got to comply, give all necessary assistance to implement an order. And that include, you know, that means providing plain text, however it needs to be done. And I think they, they, they also think that judges would be less, uh, sympathetic to companies if the companies knew well in advance that their systems were not wiretappable. And, you know, maybe that's what Comey's speeches over the last year have, have really been all about, um, not expecting Apple and Google and others to voluntarily stop encrypting, but basically setting the stage, saying, you guys have been on notice for a long time that, that we need access to plain text. If you, if you deliberately chose not to uh, uh, build your systems in a way that would allow wiretaps, then, you know, you, you have nobody to blame but yourselves once once you start getting uh, penalized by courts. I, I think you're probably right. I, and if I were a general counsel of a big tech company was it, that was in that position, I would not want to have the Justice Department doing discovery of the emails that my uh, techno, uh, technologists sent to each other during those debates uh, because they're going to be at best insensitive and uh, at worst totally damning, uh, and uh, you just have to roll out the, the statements made by unsophisticated Silicon Valley uh, left libertarians about this, uh, I, and the judge is just not going to be, have any sympathy at all for the company. All right. Um, well, um, Apple, uh, happy to... Uh, uh, defy the U.S. government, not quite so happy to uh, uh, piss off the Russians. Apparently, they are, uh, uh, they, they're the first to announce that they will be fully compliant with Russia's data localization, which is, of course, a, a data wiretap, uh, data access uh, provision uh, uh, by moving a data center or at least uh, renting space in a data center in Moscow. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, do you know anything more about that? Uh not really. I mean, I think that's that's all we really know so far. And, and you know, Russia, uh, I think, had, had delayed this the implementation of this rule for a while. But but this is the way these things always end up. If, if companies want to do business in uh, foreign countries, they end up complying for the most part. There are some some um, uh, significant counterexamples, such as Google, uh, which I think has made the decision that it's it gains more by publicly standing up to demands like this, but most companies end up complying, whether it's China's ability to access emails about dissidents from, from Yahoo, or in this case, Apple complying with Russia's data localization laws. Yeah, this is, uh, Jason, this has got to drive the Justice Department crazy to uh, uh, to have people saying, oh, well, that's the law. We have to do it for these guys. But, but for you, we're going <laughs> right. to change the law to make sure we don't have to do it for you. <laughs> right. Well, as Michael alluded to, it's very much an economic decision. All right. Uh, well, we've got the uh, the summit uh, uh, coming up next week uh, with um, uh, uh President Xi and President Obama, uh, and um, the papers are full of 
uh, veiled and not so veiled threats of retaliation for Chinese cyber espionage, especially espionage aimed at uh, uh, U.S. private, the U.S. private sector. Uh, um, I thought this might be a good chance to just. Um, talk a little bit about something that I've written about now a couple of times, which is the attack on GitHub. Uh, um, the, the attack on GitHub was unusual because it actually used the uh, Chinese Great Firewall, which means that essentially uh, China is uh, intercepting and looking at every communication that crosses the Great uh, crosses its borders uh, using uh, uh, man in the middle technology. Uh, uh, and they've used that. So if you if you ask for um, Falun Gong in a search, and the search leaves uh, uh, Chinese territory, they can extract the search terms. And if they don't like the search terms, they just cut your connection. So that's how they have managed to control information flow into the country. Uh, in this case, though, what they did is they they did the opposite in a sense. People were searching on Baidu, which was inside China. Uh, from Taiwan or the U.S., uh, these are probably Chinese speakers, maybe students uh, uh, or overseas Chinese, uh, and uh, uh, their their searches were going into the uh, uh, inside the firewall and then coming back out. As it came back out, it brought with it all of the JavaScript and other things that make our ads, that, that, you know, jump around and play songs for us and all the things that we love so much uh, about the modern Internet. Uh, and, and into that JavaScript, they um, inserted um, some malware that caused the machines of the individuals uh, to send messages to GitHub so many messages that it basically brought GitHub to its knees. They couldn't. It was a denial of service attack. Uh, uh, very novel uh, and creative use of the Great Firewall as a weapon, but as uh, later uh, studies have shown, perfectly attributable to the Chinese government. There's nobody else in China who gets to see every communication that crosses the Chinese border. Uh, and then they were using the machines of Americans to attack GitHub, uh, and they were attacking GitHub because GitHub had uh, hosted uh, the uh, the New York Times and was making it available inside China, um, which uh, since China had um, written, or since the New York Times had written stories about um, uh, President Xi's family corruption was really uh, a sensitive topic for the uh, regime. Um, what I've been struck by is, uh, while there's been lots of talk about OPM, lots of talk about uh, um, the, the uh, uh, breaches of stealing data uh, uh, about Americans or Sony, there's been almost no talk inside the U.S. government, even attributing this to uh, to China, and I can't I can't quite quite figure out why because it's such an egregious violation. Um, and so I've been thinking about ways to retaliate. And uh, my proposal, which I'm still, I still think is getting some uh, leverage, is that we should impose an obligation maybe on uh, uh, Chinese sites that do business in the United States to warn everybody who goes to their site if they are inside the firewall that they could be uh, receiving malware from the Chinese government that could harm them and could harm other Americans uh, and that people should actually have to click a box saying, no, really, I want my machine to be subject to infection by the Chinese government. Uh, so go ahead, send me to that place. Uh, I, and my theory is that, uh, one, that's a kind of retaliation that actually the government of China will hear about from all the Chinese websites that would like to be monetizing their ability to sell to overseas Chinese uh, and who now will find their sites far less popular with people uh, uh, who are getting these warnings. So that's my uh, that's my free advice. Uh, all of the uh, podcast is pretty much free advice, but uh, free advice to the government as they think about ways to uh, retaliate against China because, among other things, since we don't have a great firewall, China can't exactly retaliate in kind. 
Although I, I think you should you should be careful and, and not premature in assuming that it was China. We did ask China to investigate this, and yeah. they are investigating. <laughs> yes, that was our our hard charging State Department at work. They they within within weeks uh, they had said uh, to the Chinese, "We hope you'll investigate this." Uh, uh, luckily, you know, uh, a, a, a small nonprofit up in uh, Canada has investigated it, and they are completely persuasive on the point that it had to have been the Chinese government. Yeah, this is one step away from OJ looking for the real killer on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is, I, because no one believes that Chris Painter actually intercepted and uh, inserted malware into American machines. But it is uh, uh, sort of deputizing uh, uh, OJ to go out and look for the real killer. Uh, and yet that, as far as we know, is all that's happened. One, one can hope that they have something planned and that this is one of the easier retaliations that they intend to launch, uh, you know, as uh, the uh, President Xi's contrails are still disappearing over the West Coast. Uh, um, uh, but uh, I, uh, I guess I'm a little skeptical until I actually see the retaliation. All right. Uh, and uh, I, this one, uh, you know, the, the retaliation is going to be complicated by the fact that uh, um, the National Security Division of the Justice Department and the, um, the uh, prosecutors um, had to just embarrassedly drop a major espionage case against a Chinese, uh, uh, former Chinese citizen uh, uh, when they discovered that they'd completely misunderstood the technology. At least that's that's how the uh, press has covered it. Uh, and since many of those folks, at least at the National Security Division, who are probably supporting retaliation and helped bring the uh, indictments of the PLA, would have been involved in some way in this case, uh, it raises the question of how confident uh, they can be about uh, attributing these attacks and, and bringing the, uh, uh, the prosecutions. Yeah, you know, it's, I always I hesitate to comment on cases like this where all we have so far are press accounts because they're so often wrong. But if if the Times article is even 50 percent accurate, it's it's really, really embarrassing for the Justice Department because it, it appears that the, the uh, indictment was based on a just complete failure to understand the technology that this the professor who's the chairman of Temple's physics department what was sharing with with uh, scientists in China turned out to be completely different from what uh, prosecutors said it was. Um, you know, I haven't seen any other explanation coming out of DOJ about what the real reason for withdrawing the indictment was. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe that's because it's an espionage case and there's something else going on that we just don't know about. Uh, but like I said, if, if this is even partially true, it's pretty embarrassing. You know, it also comes on the heels of another case in Ohio where there was a hydrologist from the National Weather Service who was charged with economic espionage, and those charges were dropped shortly before trial. I mean, here uh, the professor was charged with wire fraud, but it, the, the heart of the conduct was essentially economic espionage. Um, less clear, you know, how much of a role NSD had uh, versus the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia. If it was an economic espionage charged by DOJ rule, NSD would have to be involved, I think, here because of the nature of the conduct. It's almost uh, certainly that they were involved right. in some fashion, although it was a, a Philadelphia U.S. Attorney's Office but case. But if, it, if it's wire fraud, they wouldn't necessarily have... Yeah, although if the, if the heart of the conduct is the same, uh, okay. you, you can't really charge your way around the requirement of consulting with them. But but um, but it, at least it's not entirely on them. And as Michael said, uh, you know, it's it's embarrassing and it's disheartening. I and mean, certainly it's an, or, an incredible ordeal for him and his family to have gone through, much like the woman in Ohio... Uh, it, it is to their credit, you know, there's no indication of bad faith here. It, right. You know, the, the reports suggest that they um, badly misunderstood the science and uh, at least allowed themselves to be educated uh, and, and uh, to their credit that they acknowledge their mistake and, and walked away if the press reports are accurate. But the bottom line is that shouldn't happen. Yeah. Uh, and they screwed up and they screwed up badly. And, and you know, we're, we're in an environment in which we, uh, we want the government to use the full range of options available to them, sanctions, diplomatic pressure, uh, economic pressure, and criminal uh, uh, prosecution, and it undermines uh, the goal of going after the people who are actually involved in econ economic espionage when the government swings and misses in, in, so badly in cases like this. So, uh, you know, everybody's the hero of their own story, and the uh, 
this is the story as told by the defense counsel, who obviously did a great job of uh, pulling together the uh, the science and making the presentation. Um, and so there may be something else going on uh, here. I guess there is some difficulty here, as you can imagine, if there's only 15 people who are likely to actually understand this technology – Finding ones you can trust to talk to about this before you make the arrest and do the indictment might be tricky because if, if four of them are in his the department he's a uh, right. chairman of, uh, you really can't approach them. Uh, but it does sound like they just uh, – whatever vetting they did, it wasn't sufficient. Right. Ah, well, it's a shame. Um, okay, now we are going to turn to Doug for a overview of how the uh, Congress, in the you know four and a half days they have left before Christmas, uh, uh, will actually address some of the uh, cyber law issues, principally CISA, uh, but maybe also uh, uh, the Judicial Redress Act. Uh, what are the prospects for getting to CISA and? Uh, um, for CISA actually passing, I guess, principally the Senate. So the, the prospects are good in the Senate. The Senate brought up the bill just before the August recess to try to... It's passed the House, right? So uh, we're, it, it, we're, It's passed the just, House, although the Senate has a different version, right. so they're doing their own thing. We might actually follow like the natural order, the way, the way, the way it was taught in, uh, uh, in grade school, it's, where they would actually go to conference? It's even possible there will wow. be a, a conference here. But, but what the Senate did, which uh, was smart, although obviously they would have liked to, supporters of the bill would have liked to have moved and gotten it passed before August... There was no energy to do that, and we may have some low energy coming again in the near future in the Congress. But they smoked out, essentially, who has amendments, what do they want to do, and they were able to cobble together an agreement between the two parties on a set of 22 amendments, mm-hmm. most of which should not be a problem for the bill because most of them won't pass anyway. Right. Uh, but they'll they'll come up and... Do, have you, do you know what the 22 are? Uh, we do know what the 22 are. They've been published out there. And, and are they real or are they uh, uh, repealing Obamacare? Uh, they, they are real. They are germane to the bill. They're things like uh, ones that won't pass, like, look, Senator Leahy wants to make the information shared under the bill subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Oh, my God. Well, that, everybody likes the Freedom of Information Act. It's an American apple pie. But saying to the hackers out there, look, all you have to do is ask us and we'll show you exactly what we've shared, probably not a great idea. In, in a similar vein, Senator Wyden, who's the most outspoken opponent of the bill, has an amendment that says, well, if if we determine that anyone's personal information is shared through this process, we have to inform that person. So again, let's make oh, sure shoot. that if there's any hacker whose information we've disclosed through this process of information sharing, we should make sure and tell them. Right. Uh, it's only common courtesy, right? <laughs> so uh, there will be some things like that. There's some other minor modifications to the bill, but they are all germane. Uh, there will be a substitute bill that won't pass. But for the most part, it actually looks like there's a glide path as long as the Senate can set aside the time to go through debating 22 amendments, and and that'll be a serious debate. Now, so. is that what Votorama is for, where you just pop the the, the, the question and say, you got 10 minutes? to? I, I, that just doesn't seem very senatorial. Uh, yeah, I don't think they'll go to the budget resolution Votorama-type situation uh, here, uh, they will take – it could easily take two weeks to right. get through this bill. But once the once the Senate gets past our uh, fall budget problems of possible shutdowns and, and uh, uh, positioning on Iran and, and, you know, some big serious issues, it does look like cybersecurity will come up in probably in the October time frame, maybe get bumped to November, but – but that they should be able to find some time to do it. And then it looks like the support's there to pass it, and the White House is now pretty amenable, and, and it'll be up to a, a reconciliation uh, and, and conference between the House and trying to vet that out, while all the privacy folks who oppose it will still be screaming from the rooftops. Uh, and, and, and the one other thing I would mention here, too, is – you know, we're getting into, for 
folks watching it, you may think we've been into it forever, but the presidential election season and cybersecurity has popped up uh, in that uh, forum as yeah, well. I think Jeb Bush just, just put out a whole detailed uh, platform uh, on cybersecurity uh, supporting CISA, if I remember right. Uh, uh, exactly, exactly. And and he's doing that uh, in part because the issue does have some political legs and in part because he has to uh, make sure he doesn't look like the old out-of-touch guy right. in the Republican primary. And Marco Rubio and Carly Fiorina and others have been talking about this. And and not to mention, I have to mention, just because we're on this, independent candidate John McAfee, who, of course, says <laughs> of course. <laughs> cybersecurity is the whole secret to everything, and he's going to win all these traditional polls, don't know what they're doing. He'll be president. In his view, so I, I, uh, I thought he was that. running on the uh, 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 an update of the chicken in every pot uh, 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 slogan, where it's just pot in every pot. <laughs> <laughs> well, there there may be that too, but there's at least cybersecurity for all coming if you if if John McAfee has his way. He says we're going to build a wall and make the hackers pay for it. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, well, I you know, and I I I I, I can't help. Gloating that when we started talking about CISA and the privacy issues were riding high, uh, Rand Paul was first in the polls in the Republican uh, primary about a year ago, uh, and he's been riding that privacy issue and his opposition to CISA, among other things, and NSA, right down to the point where he almost did not make the cut. In fact, if they'd insisted on 10 uh, slots at uh, today's uh, uh, Republican debate, he would have been beaten out by Chris Christie. Uh, uh, so uh, maybe people watching that are saying, you know, maybe that wasn't such a great issue for uh, 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 for him and for Mike Lee. So uh, that may have taken a little of the enthusiasm out of the Republican privacy right. Okay, uh, last topic. Uh, DOD has a breach disclosure law uh, rule that uh, is interesting in part because it's not about personal data. Uh, and to my mind, that actually means it's about something more important, uh, which is actual nation-state intrusions. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I know we're putting out a, fr- a firm bulletin on it. Uh, Michael, uh, can you kind of give us a quick summary of what it's likely to mean? Yeah, it's an interim rule issued at the end of August, uh, part of the uh, Defense Federal Act acquisition regulations, and it, it imposes uh, breach reporting obligation for defense information, covered defense information. And this is unclassified information that falls into one of several categories, uh, including controlled technical information, export controlled information, critical information, and other information requiring protection by law. And if, if some of those sound a little bit vague, they, they are. That's one of the issues, I think, in this rule that, that companies – should be commenting on during the, the comment period, uh, which goes through October 26th. Um, interesting, too, given that we talked about data localization earlier, there's there's a, a part of the regulation on cloud computing, which says that DOD shall acquire cloud computing services. Uh, oh, but if you're going to store defense information in the cloud, it's got to be within the 50 United States or other U.S. territories. So it's it's not only Russia that that is imposing uh, data localization, oh, and soon they're going to have to say yeah, it has to be a company headquartered in the United States that uh, over which no subsidiary exercises uh, uh, control or possession. Yep. Yep. All right. Um, so, do you get do you have a sense of what the uh, reaction has been to this rule? Because my sense um, is it's 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 updating, expanding. But, uh, you know, we've done a couple of uh, these disclosures, and uh, um, while our clients were always afraid when they made the disclosure, no, nobody's had the Defense Department come back and say, okay, we're going to uh, debar you. Uh, it, it, it's, they seem to be using it mainly for uh, informational purposes. Yeah, I, I think I think the main concerns are going to be around the, um, or at least part of the concerns are going to be around the definition and the lack of precision Mm-hmm. In some of them, because you, you end up in a situation where, you know, you, you have to pay outside counsel to figure out whether certain information falls into one of these buckets or not. Um, and it would be, and I don't think companies mind the reporting obligation as much as, uh, as paying the, the lawyers. difficulty of figuring out when something needs to be reported. Yeah. 
Okay, um, so I want to uh, quickly move to our very last uh, listener participation item, by, uh, and that is uh, we have had occasional complaints, mainly from people who uh, are uh, participants in the podcast, among other things, <laughs> uh, about the intro and outro music that we play, and uh, let me tell you, I, it, we only play it because I found it for free on uh, uh, Wikimedia, um, a, and so we decided that now we're, you know, we're, we're uh, past episode 80, we ought to actually go out and look for music we would like. Uh, so um, we found some candidates uh, uh, for music, and uh, um, uh, we're going to ask our listeners to weigh in uh, on the uh, the musical choices. You can vote for the current uh, uh, selection, uh, but there are three others, uh, and we're going to give you a quick sample of them, and then you can go to a website and uh, vote for them. Uh, uh, first, um, a Here's what uh, was described in the uh, um, materials as a kind of Ocean's Eleven theme, which, of course, appeals to us. All right, and and here's a second, uh, which was described as a modern rock And the last of them, and uh, of course a sentimental uh, favorite, uh, uh, I will let Jason uh, describe because there's uh, um, there's a family connection here. Yeah. So this was the last piece was arranged by my eight year old at a summer camp this summer that had a digital music class. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. I asked him to describe it, and he said it's a minute and thirty seconds long. <laughs> That's how he described it. <laughs> Although the clip you're going to hear is much shorter. Um, and I have to admit an obvious bias here. He has agreed to accept his royalties if he wins in terms of ice cream. And I get 5% of the ice cream. So oh, I right. A, I have a distinct uh, as preference. His as his agent. That's a kickback. I figured a Weinstein kid would want Bitcoin, no? <laughs> Bitcoin or ice cream. He thinks the ice cream is more valuable right now. Okay. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jason Weinstein. Uh, thank you, Doug Cantor. This was great. Uh, uh, we're glad to get feedback, and particularly uh, now, uh, you can send questions, suggestions for interview candidates, and topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave a message for us at 202-862-5785. If you, too, arrange music and you want to leave us a message with your uh, proposed alternative to our uh, four choices, uh, feel free. Um, and this has been episode 80 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up this fall, we'll have Margie Gilbert, uh, Mike Hayden, uh, Ari Schwartz, uh, uh, and Mark Shuttleworth, founder of Ubuntu and uh, uh, a longtime friend. Uh, so we hope you will join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.